So, hi everyone, and welcome back to the China in the American podcast. Today, we are speaking with Bryce Burrows, Nathan Collingberg, and Etienne Sula about their project called China and Digital Information Stack in the Global South. So, very pretty comprehensive report. So, I want to start with a overview of the aims of the report, and we can start with Bryce about that. Thank you so much for letting us be on your podcast. I'm a huge fan of China and the Americas, and I'm always thrilled to have the opportunity to speak with you, Rashid. So, to give an overview of our report, our report, as you mentioned, is titled "China and the Digital Information Stack in the Global South," and the purpose of this report was to come up with a taxonomy to sort of designate the different ways that China is able to. Manipulate, interfere, dominate. In some cases,、uh, the quote digital information stack unquote of various different countries across the global south. And the idea behind the report was we would go ahead and create this taxonomy of the digital information stack, which I believe Yatian or Nathan could speak a little bit more on、um, after I finish answering this question. But to use that as a staging place to go ahead and explore. The digital information stacks of five different case study countries. So, for this report, we looked at Thailand, Myanmar, Uganda, Nigeria, and Jamaica. And what we hope to come out of this report with were a set of policy recommendations for individuals who are on the ground in these countries who want to have more transparency towards China's involvement in their respective countries. Digital information stack. Okay, and Etienne, maybe you can give、uh, some more details on different layers of the stack. There's five different parts, I believe. So, what are the different、uh, sections of, the, of these uh, stacks? Uh, thank you, Rashid, for having us. Yes. So, the digital stack, as we、uh, describe it, is this kind of framework、uh, within which to think of China's. Influence over digital information environments outside of its borders, as you、uh, allude to, we have subdivided the stack into five layers. The first layer is the network infrastructure layer. I think that's part of this are quite famous. So, like the the four G infrastructure, internet coverage, some of it is more invisible. It really goes to the the backbone of the internet、uh, that we use every day, but we don't necessarily see. So, submarine cables, relay stations, and then it also goes to、uh, some of the like brick and mortar、uh, installations that will help software to run. Uh, so, for instance, data centers, you know, that will help AI-enabled applications to work、uh, somewhere. So, all that is the network infrastructure layer. The second layer is the device layer. This is a more is closer to the consumers. There's smartphones, tablets、uh, that you know we all use, and a significant and growing proportion of those are now manufactured in China and more and more by Chinese brands. And、uh, in this device layer, we've also included the components of things like smart cities, and I guess more and more what will be, you know, Internet of Things, so connected devices, which is kind of a, a growing segment of、uh, connected devices. The third、uh, layer is the application layer. So the application layer, they are like the social media apps. One that is the, the big. 
social media app historically to have come out of China was WeChat, this kind of giant mega app that, you know, uh, fuses all kinds of different functionalities. Uh, but this one is still relatively um, mostly used by Chinese uh, diasporas abroad. But now there's a newcomer, which is TikTok. And TikTok has kind of had this meteoric rise in popularity all around the world. And so it's a very important component of this Chinese influence in the apps layer. Uh, beyond social media apps, you also have e-payment apps in there, where uh, payment apps in several of the countries we've studied, electronic payments are a growing industry and a growing market more and more of uh, countries' economies are run through these e-payment systems. And again, Chinese companies have uh, growing stakes in several of the countries we've studied. The fourth layer is the content layer, and that will be maybe the least technical of the layers. It's the one that will cover things like uh, state media, Chinese state media, beaming content directly outside of their borders, the content agreements that the state media will have with some local uh, outlets so that people will be consuming Chinese propaganda without necessarily knowing where it's coming from. And then there's also just the work Chinese diplomats do. Chinese diplomats have been more and more active on uh, all kinds of platform on social media, both Chinese and non-Chinese. And so the, the messaging that they have there also plays a role in shaping information uh, environments outside of China's borders. Uh, and the fifth and final layer of this digital stack is the governance layer. And the governance layer covers like very high level uh, things that I think most people would intuitively put into the governance bucket, like uh, influence at the UN, where China has been very active, for instance, in the ITU to try and reshape the standards around the governance of the internet at a global level. But then there's also at a very local level, a lot of the governments that we have studied, particularly in those countries that are you know, not fully democratic or autocratic leaning, they're just inspired by the Chinese model. They see how the Chinese Communist Party controls the information that goes in and out of China. And they think, why not emulate that model? So they will pass laws that are reminiscent of the laws passed in China, or they will even try to design their internet infrastructure in a way that mimics uh, the way China has done it. So stepping back for one moment before we go forward, the, the report is about the global South and also about China. And you guys are decidedly not in the global South, for, for example. I'm curious, what, why is this report relevant in the sense of the uh, uh, fairly Northwestern perspective on the global South and their relationship with China or Chinese companies. And maybe Nathan, you can start off, off in, that, in that topic. Sure. Well, thank you again for having us on the podcast, Rashid. Um, the challenges faced by global South countries are obviously different than challenges faced by European countries. Um, and in, in many cases, they are at a structural disadvantage when dealing with China, which uh, makes them vulnerable to any number of forms of uh, exploitation. Uh, and in the technological space, China can be offering uh, opportunities that in the short term can be very beneficial and very tempting um, for uh, leaders and governments that want to provide services for their citizens. This obviously can create vulnerabilities that we explore through the report, which range from 
points of leverage over you know the future provision of services, whether in services that countries rely on for their economy, like uh, industrial control systems used in mining or resource extraction, but also for communication and sort of whole of society. These are particular uh, challenges that are very different from those that uh, European, North American countries uh, deal with in their relationships with uh, China. Okay. And you mentioned in the report, you have various case studies on, you know, uh, some countries you examine have vastly different governance structures from Jamaica to Uganda, which is a very good tapestry of case studies. I want to dig into some of the case studies again, before I go back to some of the meta points on the report. So I guess it would be to Jamaica and Uganda is very contrasting, kind of gives the give good intuition pumps for a further conversation. I'm not sure who wants to handle the Uganda example, but why one, why did you choose Uganda as a specific case study? And then what were some of the interesting facts in the case study on Uganda? So Uganda was really interesting because it is uh, a partial democracy. It has democratic institutions, but it's also had single party rule for uh, decades. Uh, and that creates sort of interesting social fracture in which the the goals uh, and priorities of the government can be very different from those of the citizens. And so we see this in the space of, uh, for instance, smart cities or safe cities that Huawei has developed uh, in Uganda, which give the government incredible ability to surveil its citizens. Um, this is obviously quite desirable for an authoritarian regime like Museveni's. It's also very desirable for China because it makes the regime more dependent on Chinese technology, Chinese expertise, and it also continues to erode norms of uh, you know, liberal values, privacy, free access to information um, in a way that, that normalizes a Chinese model uh, across Africa in a way that China hopes will be advantageous in the future. So, you know, when in the case of Uganda, Huawei helped Museveni surveil and ultimately detain and abuse uh, opponents of his regime. This makes his regime more dependent on China um, and more beholden to China in any number of ways that China can find advantageous. Why is that? So in one way, I'm not sure I agree that someone's regime could be beholden to some other power in this particular example, given that, yes, it is a case that the administration domestically wants to control or wants to influence its own population in some way. And it could be a case that also Chinese companies are more willing to provide services you know, for, for that, for that, for that uh, instance. But why then does that translate to some kind of other like macro influence of China, meaning the CCP in this case on the government? Well, so that can really depend on which layer you want to look at. Um, and so if we look at, for instance, the uh, network infrastructure layer, um, Chinese firms have huge ownership over uh, the network infrastructure of uh, Uganda, uh, in particular, the sort of trunk backbone of fiber optic network. And uh, as we've seen, even specifically in the case of Uganda, that kind of ownership can be used as a point of leverage. We saw that with the Entebbe airport, where Uganda's uh, seemingly uh, possibly at risk of defaulting on a $150 million loan 
you know, provoked worries that uh, China might uh, take possession of the airport. Those those were very unfounded concerns. Well, uh, they, you know, ultimately, we don't know sort of how that uh, could be implemented, you know, in the future or what sort of backroom, uh, you know, negotiations take place between the two regimes. Um, but it's certainly a threat to Ugandan national sovereignty and, and particularly deeply offensive to its citizens, which I think provides a, a pretty clear vulnerability for the government and one that only China, for the, for the Ugandan government, that uh, sort of only China can protect them from. That's, that's a common claim made uh, many times by people who watch China's loans and China's infrastructure build across the global south. But again, they're very unfounded. Uh, cross default clauses and contracts, the usual point out. Uh, I, had, I had a conversation a few episodes actually ago on the podcast with some lawyers about these kind of clauses. And they're, they're, they're much more mundane than people assume they are from the actual category of clause, cross default clause. They really don't have any bite in the way people think they do. Uh, Listeners can go back to previous episodes on on those on those topics, but see that 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 comes to the point of so what counts really as leverage uh, in in these in these examples? Maybe Bryce, you have a different viewpoint on this. Yeah, so I think something in my case, I happen to write most of the Jamaica case study, and one of the reasons why, and this is to answer your initial question for Uganda, but in the Jamaican sense, one of the reasons why I think Jamaica was an interesting case study is given how democratic the country is, um, its proximity to the United States, but also how much strategic emphasis China has placed on Jamaica within the context of um, its broader relationships across the Caribbean, which for someone like you who's from Barbados and obviously studies China's engagement in the region, and also for the listeners of this podcast, I don't know if it's necessary for me to go into the meta points of it. But I would argue that some of the concerns that exist are related to potential sort of like nefarious use of some of these technologies. Um, But also, um, there's also issues related to disaster preparedness, their resiliency, um, as well as making sure that, you know, Jamaican technology or technology is used by the Jamaican government or by Jamaican, what's the word I'm looking for? used by Jamaican companies um, are also used in a fair way. Um, and I think another aspect of this too, as we've discussed previously, that this report really tries to hit on is it's one thing for Westerners, especially us from North America and from Europe to say, hey, look, please don't have this contract with insert Chinese company here. It's another to provide a, a, a viable alternative that's also cost effective. And I don't think there's enough of that discussion going on across, I don't want to just say Western capitals because it's not just an issue unique to a NATO country or an EU member country, somewhere in North America or Europe, um, but also across other tech, uh, other democracies as well, like South Korea, um, Japan, and elsewhere. So I think that's a big crux of what motivated the desire to want to do a report like this and to sort of also provide context that other countries should try to provide more alternatives to some of these technologies 
than what they currently are in a viable and affordable way. But isn't the case that a lot of the, let's say, for example, the case of Jamaica, which is majority of countries are, you know, standardly democratic, put it that way. And there, there has been no risk of Chinese technology doing anything nefarious. Uh, sorry, no facts of nefarious activity from Chinese technologies in these countries. And these countries have been using Chinese tech for decades. So it's not like there's a shortage, a shortage of data to track down of uh, a bad activity. So in the Caribbean, across, across the Caribbean, the local telecommunications companies have been using Huawei telecom services for, again, for longer than I was alive, essentially, or as long. And there's no actual bad problems happening. And they continue because it has a good value. It's a, you know, good, obviously good price and good services and so on. So is it only a potential risk that people should be recalibrating their, their system for? Is the potential risk actually big enough to merit this conversation at the end? Um, so it's a bit of a complicated answer. And I've been listening, of course, to Nathan and Bryce, uh, and there's like several things in what in their answer that I'd like to bounce back on. First, the what Nathan this distinction Nathan made between you know the governments and the citizens, and so something that is good for a government might not necessarily good be good for the citizens. I think for citizens, in the very short to medium term, it's very clear that having more Chinese tech and like having China be the provider of the blueprint for the information system in your country is not going to be conducive to freedom of speech, you know, political freedom. As Nathan described in Uganda, China has enabled the government to crack down on opponents in countries uh, like Thailand or Myanmar. In Myanmar in particular, China has been tied to helping the government set up a firewall around the country to uh, stop essentially or control what the population was saying inside the country. The populations in Thailand and Myanmar very aware of this. Uh, in Myanmar, when the coup happened, uh, Huawei phones like dipped and more people started buying Apple phones. So I think the citizens in, those, in that country had some notion that China, like Chinese products, came with certain strings attached so far as their freedom of assembly uh, was concerned. Similarly, in Thailand, when you had the Milk Tea Alliance, this kind of civil society uh, protest movement against the authoritarian government that was then kind of went international. They had connections, you know, with uh, Taiwan, with Belarus, with other parts. Uh, and kind of the connecting tissue of all these movements was this idea of protesting against authoritarian governments. And there was the idea that China was very much enabling these authoritarian governments. And I think the tech component of this, which is selling governments the technology that will allow them to track the movements and speech uh, of their populations, is a very big part of that. But that, that to me, sounds like a slightly different problem. That, that's not a Chinese problem to me. That sounds like an authoritarian governments want to control their population problem. Where in, in, in the case of Chinese technology, in those, you know, Uganda, Myanmar, Thailand, for example, yeah, it, it, it is quite, uh, I would say, bad for Chinese technology companies to continue to subsidize that kind of bad behavior. But that that's not a risk. That is a very explicit problem. 
to, to me. And, you know, in this case, it takes two to tangle to get those kind of problems to be magnified. But in, in most countries that don't have um, extremely explicit authoritarian governments, we have, you know, typical uh, uh, elected parties that typically probably aren't that good at governance, but they're still just normally um, democratically elected. What should then they take from this kind of report when they're thinking about Chinese tech stuck in their country? Uh, maybe Nathan could have that. Well, I would actually look to a different country that also falls sort of on the spectrum from authoritarianism to democracy, which is Nigeria. Uh, you know, a democratically elected government that still has uh, some highly undemocratic tendencies, and those can be exacerbated by uh the role that Chinese technology, but also other forms of Chinese influence are taking. So if we look at the governance layer in Nigeria, we see that um, after you know the president was insulted on Twitter, he chose to try to ban Twitter uh, across the country, um, was successfully for quite a while, and has since tried to develop a national data policy, which superficially looks to be modeled on uh, the EU and the GDPR, but in fact is much more closely modeled on the Chinese uh, model of uh, a firewall. Uh, and so even among among governments that are you know elected by their people or elected relatively recently by their people, you know, compared to Uganda, this is, uh, you know, there's a, a, a desire uh, on the Chinese side to shape norms in a less democratic direction. And that's not something that democratically elected governments are immune to, that those forms of influence. Um, and that can come in the form of uh, exchange programs, taking elites from these countries to China to learn about uh, approaches to digital governance that China favors. Uh, it can also happen um, at the more, uh, you know, general popular level of uh developing uh, training programs to ensure that, uh, you know, Nigerian technicians are, you know, trained and brand loyal to technologies and approaches that, uh, you know, are developed in China and that China favors um, as approaches to social control. This is particularly present in Uganda, where uh, law enforcement are now uh, undergoing a lot of training on how to, quote, fight cybercrime from Huawei personnel when in fact, you know, a lot of that uh, fighting cybercrime is really just surveilling uh, law-abiding citizens. I, I agree, but at the same time, I'm still trying to get this point across more. Whereas China cannot, it is very unlikely, for example, for China to somehow influence Trinidad or Panama, or you know, any other country in, in, in that kind of um, category of countries to somehow decide they want to turn on surveillance. This, this decide they want to do a lot more population monitoring and screening and so on. Uh, those, have, those have to be conversations that the country themselves already want to do. And I'm not sure if you can call that Chinese influence per se, if the country says, hey, we want to control, we want to know more information, we want to do this, we want to do that, how then can we go about getting the resources to do it? I think it's a valid concept to say that China is ready and willing to assist in those instances, but it doesn't seem to me like influence. Bryce? So I think there's, and this is something that 
I think Etienne was trying to allude to earlier and a little bit of what Nathan was saying. There's also an element of China enabling some of the worst autocratic and authoritarian tendencies. So with what Nathan was explaining related to Uganda and Nigeria, I think is concerning in that, one, I think it's important to separate the desires from a government and its people, but also I think it's important to remember that you know, a Chinese company like Huawei training up technicians or police officers in a given country, in the case of Uganda, has already been seen to be used against political opposition. Um, I think that's a bigger concern. And one of the reasons why we picked Jamaica as a case study is because in, in the context of Jamaica, the risks of these sort of issues, which we've discussed for Nigeria, Thailand, Myanmar, Uganda, even though, I mean, there's always a risk of that there, the Jamaican government obviously isn't going to take a 180 and really start cracking down on its people in that same way. Um, but I think it's important to remember that in the context of this report, that it, there is an, an, an ability of China to enable some of these worst tendencies. Granted, it's a sovereignty issue, and that's a fair critique of it, and I hear where you're coming from with that. But I also think it's worth noting it's still not a good trend overall. What is the biggest, less the country, Jamaica, but category of Jamaica in particular? What, from your perspective, it's a plural you, is the biggest risk of Chinese technology stat in those kind of countries? So I think in the case of, of democracies, essentially, and global South democracies, and that, that isn't just a Jamaica. I think other good examples might be countries like where my family's from, like Cape Verde or others that have very strong democratic institutions and in some ways are actually rated higher than the United States and other Western company, uh, countries in terms of freedom of speech and rule of law, et cetera. Um, I think the bigger concern that these places need to watch out for when it comes to dealing with Chinese companies are related to you know, the potential sort of backlash that they might get domestically. Although you're right, and we've discussed this before, for some countries, you know, if you have a layman person in a country, insert here, they might not think it's a big deal that Huawei is providing them their 5G or their 4G or that ZTE or China Mobile are doing that. But I do think there's still a risk related to protecting one's own data. I do think that there's also a risk related to the, um, the reliability of some of these products. And also, I still think there's a little bit of a risk related to if a country were to become more liberal down the line, this could also be used to enable some of the worst tendencies within that country's government. Not to say that Jamaica is going to become something like that now. That's not the case. And I'm not trying to allude to that or anything or for any other countries that are, have similar, very robust democratic institutions and deal with China, which there are many. Um, I think it's just something to remember, um, especially in the context of you know, where democracy is going globally. So I, I think also the relevant point to do is then when you're having a discussion about risk is to calibrate the risk. So if, if of course, you're going to mention, yes, there's a potential risk of countries becoming less democratic, the whole backsliding conversation. Yeah, okay, sure. There is a possibility space where that is possible, but how probable is that risk? 
and therefore it, because it's likely very very low probability the 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 aspect of what you 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 weight it in a conversation is so 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 low but a similar for example if you talk about reliability risk we do have a lot of data to calibrate reliability risk as well given these kind of using Huawei for not only Huawei but it's ZTE Huawei for decades so you do have reliability statistics to calibrate that risk where you can say oh well that's a very low risk as well you mentioned also data and data usage and concerns around that that, that, that is a, a more tricky conversation to calibrate risk but even then you can there are some like priors you can use to show that those risks are also probably low should be low calibrated as well like what actually is the risk to quote unquote broad data uh, when it comes to using some Chinese technology versus Twitter, Facebook, or even 23andMe, you know, all uh, Western companies. So I'm not sure exactly how you would calibrate the risk to a point that this becomes a feasible argument to think about Chinese technology. Maybe FTA could take that. I mean, in a way, I want to use an analogy that might take us a bit away from the subject of the report, but I feel like it's very comparable because Europe has had these conversations for years, if not decades, with Russian gas, you know, where people were saying, like the people who were buying Russian gas, it's cheap. Russia is not going to invade us anytime soon. You know, we have NATO. What's the risk? And I, I hear something similar here where you're saying, we're getting this cheap IT, you know, systems, the the best available ones for our needs right now. What's the, the risk for us? And I think what the war in Ukraine has shown is that the risk, you know, doesn't materialize until you have a crisis or something happens that changes the underlying calculus. And what the countries we're studying and what we're trying to assess is to show that in this framework of the stack, which kind of is a representation of these information, these countries' digital information ecosystems, China is positioning itself or has positioned itself, maybe not necessarily in a calculated way, but the end result is that, that China is now in a position where it has, you know, levers of influence and it can apply, like it has influence or it has sufficient importance in those different layers that should there be a crisis that involves China, these countries would be constrained in the decisions they can take vis-a-vis -vis China because they now rely on China to provide you know, what, is essential, what is an essential service in the 21st century for many citizens. Um, so you're right, we're not saying that like right now, China is going to cut off the internet out of these countries. We're just saying that this is building vulnerabilities that already for citizens are problematic because the way China is enabling autocratic governments to constrain freedom of speech is a problem for citizens right now. But even in the longer term for the governments themselves, there's potentially risks to national sovereignty, again, if there's you know a crisis that involves China. I, I assume, this is a slightly provocative question, I assume you prefer that vulnerability to be on the Western side then? In the case of, obviously, these countries cannot just go and create their own telecommunications technologies and networks and provide services and build it all out of sea cables. Someone has to build it from outside of a third party. So it has to be somebody else. 
So, for example, you know, we know that in a post-Northern world, uh, America in particular has been very liberal when it comes to spying, data usage, tapping all kinds of things, you know, court, court files are open. Why then, in this case, is this a preferable alternative to cheaper Chinese technology? Uh, Etienne, or, okay, Nathan. Well, I just think one 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 thing that makes a fundamental difference is the difference in the relationship between American or European tech firms and the the state, where um, you know the state may take extraordinary action to conduct espionage or other activities. But those are the exception, fundamentally, maybe not a rare exception, but they're the exception rather than the rule. Whereas in China, the relationship between the party state and some of these national firms like Huawei, like CTE is fundamentally sort of hand in glove, um, where things are being designed from the ground up, not uh, to be sort of exceptional cases, but to be fundamental to the systems and the systems of governments that government governance that um, that guide them. To, to circle back just for a moment to Etienne's point about um, the crisis in Europe and the crisis in Ukraine right now, um, you know, we can see, it's not hard to see in Ukraine specifically, the power that you know data has um, in a, you know a conflict zone, um, the you know uh, flow of information of, of personally identifiable information um, that Russia has access to now has been used you know in the course of um, you know repressing and in some cases murdering Ukrainian citizens. Um, that's sort of a, a fundamental structural vulnerability that is created um, by a vast data pool on um, the, a nation's citizenry. And so, uh, you know, uh, even when that data isn't necessarily immediately actionable, you know, at this moment, you know, in a situation like Myanmar, where China has now developed a, a vast trove of data on uh, the citizens, that creates an inherent vulnerability for all citizens in Myanmar, um, as well as for the government. I agree that that risk is present, but I guess the difference is I'm not, okay, let me this way. For example, there's a very interesting story. I'm not sure if it's as popular as it should, probably should be uh, in the US. So 23andMe, which most people might know, it's a company where you can do some, uh, you know, essentially test some uh, genetics about you, where you're from, different ethnic backgrounds, and so on. And they have quite a big treasure trove of this kind of genetic information, mostly, mostly um, U.S. citizens. Now, 23andMe actually sells this data to pharmaceutical companies, you know, very clean, quote-unquote, capitalist transactions. So I'm, I'm all for that. But what happened was when the data was sold, uh, to uh, GlaxoSmithKline, for example, it was actually able to use a track down serial killer because his nephew or cousin um, actually submitted some data to Transfermi, and they were able to match that with this serial killer's data, um, DNA that was found on a crime scene like a decade or two ago, something like that. So, you know, uh, you, you can you can get a quite a lot of information about from very normal activity, from just normal commercial activities in, you know, US and so on and so on. And, you know, one could easily see how this very quaint story can become a very nightmarish reality quite easily. But, you know, this is the US. And uh, again, it, all of these, like, data nefarious use cases 
all of these things can be turned into nightmare scenarios from any viewpoint. And I, I do wonder, does that factor in as much as it should into your scenario about trying technology? Um, again, this potential future, which is not realized being as, um, uh, one-sided as it maybe appears to be. So, and, and I think it's, you're right for pointing that out. The one thing I would say that the, I mean, the purpose of our report wasn't necessary to look at that, obviously in the American context, it should be worth noting that a lot of the research we do at the Alliance for Securing Democracy is also related to how to strengthen data protections and other similar things within the domestic American political context. Um, and that's something that American lawmakers have not been good about compared to European counterparts and whatnot. Um, and to us, we see that as being as a broader sort of like critique um, and an issue, although that's not the purpose of this report. But it's good that you pointed that out. The one other thing I would would um, flag uh, for this line of discussion we're having here is one of our case set or one of our recommendations. The last one really emphasizes the importance of wanting to establish and maintain protected communication, especially for both uh, individuals that are involved in politics or policy related to the U.S. Open Technology Fund that funds, you know, things like Signal and Tor and whatnot. We do think that that's really important and we think that needs to be expanded, especially for the context of some of these other countries. And to your earlier point, as that expands, that obviously would hamper even more accessibility for uh, U.S. activities related to gathering data and whatnot. Not for everything, but hopefully for more protected um, communications. Um, so I, I'd like to like pull back a little bit and come closer to the topic of the report. Since I know when we mentioned data, there is a, a temptation in a way to, you know, data is everywhere, it's everything. Since our report is specifically about information control, like on that point specifically, I think China is special and in a way unique in that I don't think there are other countries that have theorized and implemented as stringent kind of an information control ecosystem in their own, like within their own borders. You've heard of the great Chinese firewall, you know, this ensemble of like technical and legal measures that filter like all the information that comes in and out of China. That is something that you don't see pretty much anywhere else in the world. You definitely don't see it in the United States or in Europe. So this idea that the Chinese Communist Party has, you know, that they can somehow, yeah, model, completely shape the perception of the people, of their, their citizens uh, by filtering what they're seeing and what they are allowed to see from the outside world is a very uniquely Chinese uh, concept. Now you're seeing other countries try to emulate that, like Russia in particular has been really trying hard to develop its own sovereign internet, which would be, you know, its version of the, but it's not as developed and it's a kind of more recent development, whereas China has been doing this for decades. And so this model that is, you know, the domestic Chinese model, It does inform in a way, you know, the way Chinese systems are designed. And so when they when we talk about exporting the Chinese model to other countries, you also have to see this dimension of you know information filtration in a way of like manipulation on a really vast scale of the opinions of the people that are living in the countries where the systems are developed are deployed. Sorry. 
I, I think that is a very good point. I, I, I do, I do want to point out something though. You know, we, we, we hmm. The, the way how China's information control ecosystem is is quite advanced. I, I do find it somewhat ironic. Um, I mean, you guys know this that the, I believe that the, the initial origins of that was a Cisco product, and uh, where a lot of the let's say the, the control ecosystem we have now was started by a country from a quote you know big democracy that just wanted some profit essentially and i'm do wondering if you know what again the likelihood does this actually try to do well okay well uh if jamaica wants to build a surveillance system says click a build that too that's an, that's an american company does it have to be a trans company of course um so we do know that's also a possibility uh, as as well and yes you're you're absolutely uh, right uh, i would say going back to nathan's point the difference being that the United States doesn't control Cisco, you know, and there is no kind of U.S. policy to try and develop as controlled as possible internets in as many places as possible, whereas it is very much a Chinese policy. There is in China this kind of integration between the private sector there and the, and the, the government that I don't think is replicated in the U.S. or Europe or in other countries that could provide those services. Of course, like, don't make me say what I didn't say. Like, like, there are issues with Western companies as well and with Western governments. But I think that China is kind of unique in this kind of holistic approach to information control that runs, you know, throughout all the different chains of the, like, information supply system in, in China. Mm-hmm. Bryce, you had a follow, follow-up comment? Yeah. And, and not to, to take this conversation in an entirely different direction, um, I think something else that's also important to, to emphasize when looking at the way that some of, these, some of these technology companies operate in the United States versus China is that a lot of the ways that American technology companies sort of like ideologically identify are as techno-libertarians, whereas in China there's much more of an emphasis on techno-nationalism. Um, and without going too deep into it and trying to take this conversation off the rails. I think it's important to remember that in the U.S. context, especially related to Cisco or other technology companies, even within a lot of these American tech firms, there's very much an ad, uh, an adverse, not an adverse, but a sort of not fear of government, but a, an idea to want to keep away from, you know, any of the technology that one's developing, you know, could be related to government. Like, um, you know, Whatever folks are doing in Washington, D.C., that's great. We're here in Silicon Valley or elsewhere. We're doing our own thing. Government's, you know, um, not obsolete, but they're behind the times. We're moving fast. Where within China, and something that we talk about in another part, portion of this report, specifically related to how industry interacts with the PRC party state, um, is how government and these tech companies oftentimes, not always, work hand-in-hand hand together. And even though the party occasionally has to do things to try to pull some of these companies to adhere to things that they want. Um, That relationship isn't working in the same way here in the United States. Although there are many policymakers who would like to see that, (laughs) Um, which is an entirely different conversation. Sure. Uh, There's another recommendation you made in your report 
under advocacy, I believe it was, where you mentioned that uh, you recommend for these uh, groups or these uh, countries to advocate for more financing or support from these established democracies, I assume for the you know, very technological um, implementation and upgrades and so on. Uh, am I remember that correctly? And if so, how, how do you characterize um, that recommendation to play out in various countries. So I, I can give this a swing and, and tee up Nathan or Etienne if you're both interested in, in answering this further. So the idea was that to sustain more advocacy efforts and to try to get more support for advocacy, him wanting to pressure governments to be more skeptical of significant investments, not only from China, but also just across the board. Um, and I think one of the bigger places where that we try to like talk about for this point was related to Thailand, um, not just not that the Milk Tea Alliance was related to wanting to block a Huawei investment, but this idea that that Thailand should be a little bit more skeptical or a little bit more. Um, I can't think of the word at the moment, but a little the idea that Thailand should be much more aware of what it's getting into sort of is where we decide to come up with this policy recommendation. Um, Etienne, if you want to talk about that a little bit more in the Thailand context, I'm more than happy to pass that off. I don't want to read too much into the text. I think it might go back to what we were talking about earlier about trying to empower citizens who in a way are much more directly impacted by this Chinese model, or at least they're impacted in a much shorter term. As we mentioned, governments might realize that their sovereignty is impinged in like 10 years when there's an actual conflict. Government uh, citizens can feel the pinch right now. And Thailand for that was interesting because the Milk Tea Alliance was kind of this interesting blend, basically, between governments, that, uh, sorry, citizens who are upset against their authoritarian government, but also they their the name, you know, Milk Tea Alliance and the connection with Taiwan, there was a very strong perception that China was somehow enabling that uh, the uh, narrowing of civil liberties in their country. And so the idea here is really to kind of empower these activists, the people who are on the ground. You said at the beginning, us three were, you know, oceans away from the countries we studied. We kind of trust the civil society organizations on the ground to be able to best assess when their civil societies are, oh, sorry, when their civil rights are under threat. And so this recommendation was really to try and encourage Western governments to support these uh, movements. Now, let me say one of my biggest, I say, problems with the report, put it that way, is, and I say a problem in the sense of report, but it's actually a good thing in general on a meta level it's very often when i read your recommendations that you propose it feels like what you're saying boils down to be better democracies and that that is a that is a good thing for sure by same time you know this the chicken and egg problem right where if these countries were better democracies they wouldn't have this issue of trying to be better democracies and see you know, Big, one of the biggest political science and economic problems in history. And I'm, I'm curious how you interpret my interpretation of your recommendations. 
Well, I think that's, I mean, I think that's a, the correct analysis. And there's a lot of ways in which it's clear in the report that the greatest vulnerabilities are to the countries that have the, the weakest democratic norms and institutions. And so Myanmar has any number of vulnerabilities uh, that Jamaica does not have. And there are uh, all sorts of, uh, um, you know, problems with Chinese investment and Chinese technology, uh, you know, in Uganda and Nigeria, two countries which teeter back and forth between various sort of democratic and anti-democratic trends and principles. Um, and part of our report is to uh, encourage countries to stop this slide towards authoritarianism, you know, whether before it begins in the case of Jamaica or before it gets any worse in the case of Uganda. Yeah, because it, it, it almost seems like this is like a, a wedge to essentially talk about this which, which obviously makes sense given it's a secure democracy type report where it's like how do we address democratic backsliding but we're going to use this digital conversation to kind of get into the topic um that's how kind of that's how that's, how, that's why i think it's a very important report because that is uh i think the key issue where you need to take these things seriously because of this big meta problem and there are any number of ways in which these countries can engage in democratic backsliding without any help at all from China or any other authoritarian regime. And, um, you know, there's any number of civil society organizations, both in these countries and in other, you know, in, in democracies working on that problem. Uh, our particular focus of this report was ways in which China is actively promoting uh, that slide and actively developing ways in which it can facilitate greater authoritarianism in uh, the global south. Okay, um, I'm going to be ending the conversation now. Is there, and now, before the policy, one last thing, but do you have anything else to close off from, let's say, Etienne and um, Bryce? Do you, sure. a question I have for you, I actually have some related to recent events, but also if you want to ask, a, like, I, I thought you would ask us about like our favorite reggae songs or something. So I'm, I'm a little bit disappointed <laughs> we're on the podcast and we didn't get to have like a meta conversation about the Caribbean. <laughs> Obviously, that's not the focus of it. But I feel like if I'm going to be on this podcast, there has to be at least a mention of that somewhere. Um, so I, so what, something I know we're still recording and you could splice this up, however. <laughs> Let me just start. <clears throat> so something I'm really curious about, given some of the recent events with uh, Pelosi's visit to Taiwan. Since we're, you know, this is the China and the Americas podcast. Hypothetically, if the PRC were to poach off a new diplomatic ally um, in response which ones do you think within the region would be most likely to change diplomatic allegiances? Hmm. I think maybe like St. Lucia. I think St. Lucia said that piece St. Lucia has been teetering for quite some time because I did double switch. Um, where Solution was um, Taipei, then it went to Beijing, then it went back to Taipei. Now, that was a political party change for the party come back in. The party has changed yet again in St. Lucia. And there are some very simple reasons why that change could happen, I think, quite quickly. Even without like, a big thing like Pelosi, for example. So St. Lucia is a very key one to watch, I'd say. And uh, perhaps Belize as well. Perhaps Belize, uh, I think, is one to watch a bit more close. And Honduras, of course. Because Honduras, you know, 
St. Lucia and Belize, they have economic reasons. Honduras does actually have also ideological reasons as well. Because of the new very left wing government, uh, in I mean it's ironic because we 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 consider left wing to be ideologically close to, to Beijing, but it's not really actually true because they're the left wing in Latin America is very anti market in sense of innovation and so on. But the left wing government in Honduras, the new one, they actually had signaled they want to go to Beijing anyway. And they've done some things, so for example, they have canceled various Zeta projects in, in Honduras. I think that switch is likely going to happen fairly soon also. Yeah, that, that's something that uh, came to mind immediately in response to that visit. Um, because usually whenever China tries to lash out at Taiwan for something, especially with a visit like this one, which they've you know, obviously put on very much on a pedestal, um, you know, diplomatic ally, ally poaching is usually very close behind. And, uh, and that might not happen in days, um, but in the weeks and months to come, it's something I'm very keen to sort of watch. And given the region, um, it's always interesting to see. I, it's also interesting to me that the ones that are most that you think are most potential have the most potential to switch are the Anglophone countries, um, not as much the actual Hispanophone. Um, countries. And it's interesting that's that right, that's, right. that's not, yeah. given that, you know, a Paraguay or a Guatemala are, are bigger. Um, I don't know if you could say that they're more regional powers, but. I, I guess, I guess the reason why I say that's because I don't think China has the ability to poach countries. Uh, I, I only think that countries have the interest of changing. Uh, and you know that, for example, where Panama, for, where I am, Panama has been tr- tried for years and years to switch to Beijing, but Beijing refused because the whole mind Joe she didn't bring truce at the time. But then when Taiwan came to power, they're like, okay, let's switch. And I think because of the institutional ties between a lot of these, especially Guatemala, Paraguay in particular, um, they're so, so tight on the elite politics level with Taiwan. I think they, they don't really have a big interest of, of changing. But of course, because it is elite politics, we could wake up one morning and say, oh, boom, bye-bye, Taipei, hello, Beijing. So I think that's the risk there. It's hard to analyze it. But I do think it's the institutional changes, our credibility, our ties that really binds the decision to make a switch. And it's not much because in reality, Beijing could bribe all of them away overnight if, if, but promise that they don't want to accept the bribes. So I think it's more of who, who is more willing to change, um, not because of any kind of pull from Beijing or push from Taiwan. Yeah, it's definitely a two way street. And something I noticed when I was living in Taiwan and when I was at the military academy in Taiwan, is we had a lot of cadets from across Latin America and, and from the Caribbean, um, not from any of the Anglophone countries, although Belize does have quite a few officer cadets training in Taiwan at the moment. Um, but it was interesting seeing those elite to elite connections with, you know, countries at the time that recognized Taiwan, the Republic of China, like uh, Dominican Republic or El Salvador or Gambia or Burkina Faso. Um, for example, I remember when I was there, um, some of the some of the elite kids in the Dominican Republic who were students who would go to Taiwan who were the sons and daughters of, you know, insert high ranking military officer, right, right. government official. 
if they didn't want to take any of the tests to go to school in the United States, they're pretty much guaranteed to get the Taipei Taiwan <laughs> scholarship to go right, to Taiwan right. and get a degree in English. So it was very <laughs> easy to do that. In addition to like historical ties between Chiang uh, Kai-shek and That's right. Trujillo and, and others. So it's, it's, it's interesting to kind of see that overlap. Um, yeah, that, that's the only thing I, I want to ask. Unless you want to ask us about reggae, I'm, it's late for Etienne, so um, we no <laughs> might problem. be better to go. No problem. Okay. So does anyone have any other closing comments or thoughts? Well, please don't ask me about reggae. Um, <laughs> but I just wanted to go back to what you mentioned about being better democracies. <laughs> I think it is kind of a running uh, threat, you know, through everything we do uh, at our organization. And I really hope the report doesn't come off as preachy, because if there is anyone who needs to hear the message of being better democracies, I think it's probably, you know, the Western democracies. Um, when we talk of democratic backsliding and of all these things, they're happening right here as well. And I think one of the points of this report, of course, ideally we would like to be uh, read in those countries and to be helpful, to help them maybe have arguments to better uh, conceptualize like some of the technical measures that they are fighting. But then there's also, I think, a message to maybe the Western governments about paying attention to these countries and what's happening here. And, you know, you hear a lot about great power competition era, blah, blah, blah. And this is kind of, okay, well, this is what this means in practice. You have these countries that are kind of caught in the struggle. What are you going to do to help them? And, and to that point, it's not sexy. Um, the bigger point is that it's a lot of it's listening um, and something something that is kind of relevant, not necessarily directly to our report, but in terms of um, U.S. allies and larger countries dealing with neighboring countries that are smaller. Something I've really been impressed with with the new Albanese government in Australia is their ability to just and, and this is something I would love to see more American diplomats do and more American government officials, including you know President Biden um, from time to time, Vice, Vice President uh, Harris, go just spend time with your counterparts in the region. Um, there was like a, a photo that Albanese posted of him watching some rugby matches with some of the other Pacific Island states, uh, heads of government. That's, it seems like a very small thing to do. And it is, but it's the kind of thing where it's like you're building rapport, you're building that close relationship. You're something that's actually something that's genuine and that you're not just trying to preach and say, do this thing that we want. No, we're partners. We're really trying to get to know each other. And we belong within this wider region together. And our histories and our peoples and our cultures are intertwined, much like in the Americas. Um, in some ways, you can argue, and I know we've discussed this, Rashid, um, even though I, we work at a transatlantic uh, think tank, in many ways, the United States has closer ties with the rest of the Americas um, in terms of government, in terms of um, political sort of evolutions than we do with, say, countries like France. Um, not to take away from France being an ally, but, you know, similar sort of uh, evolutions over time. So it's the last thing I would put in. Thank you so much, everyone, for joining the podcast. It was a very insightful conversation. Yeah, thank you so much.